fears are growing in Sri Lanka that the efforts to negotiate a lasting settlement between the government and the Tamil Tigers are breaking down. The recent resumption of attacks by the Tigers has brought condemnation from the international community. Hopes that the 2004 tsunami would bring communities together have proved unfounded. Indeed, it is suggested that the Sri Lankan response to the disaster exposed the inequalities between communities. Dr Miranda Allison from Warwick's Department of Politics and International Studies is an expert in ethno-national conflict and the experience in Sri Lanka. Miranda, the conflict between the Sri Lankan government and the Tamils has been continuing for some time now. Why did this conflict start? Well, that's quite a large question. Uh, I think... If you ask the Tamil Tigers, for example, they would sort of talk about a long history of uh, going back hundreds of years of repression by the Sinhalese uh, on the island. Um, but I think actually rather than that long history itself being uh, most important, what is more important is sort of how ideas of that history on, on the two different sides are sort of used. Uh, in actual fact, you can see much more pragmatic factors uh, sparking the, the conflict in terms of what happened when Sri Lanka became independent from Britain. Essentially what happened was you, you got a Sinhalese majority in government which uh, immediately began taking steps to bring in some very regressive laws which were discriminatory against Tamils. Um, so laws to do with uh, language, language policy, education policy um, and so forth. And there was also a, a loss of Tamil jobs as well, so there were economic factors. So you can see those kind of material factors leading to the conflict in the second half of the 20th century. Um, but at the same time, both sides have these sort of uh, these kind of narratives of, of conflict, right? So the Sinhalese have a sort of cultural narrative of uh, an idea of them being destined, um, sort of gifted the island by Lord Buddha, uh, and sort of being destined to, to rule it. And this idea of the Tamils being sort of interlopers from from India who invaded their country, whereas the Tamils would argue that that actually they have a long history in the island as well. Uh, so those kind of constructions of, of different constructions of history have also been very significant, I think, in helping to, to fuel the conflict. Um, and those ideas are sort of passed on from generation to generation. So I think you have both sort of ideological stuff going on as well as sort of material uh, discrimination. Um, there were also a number of extremely violent uh, sort of public riots against Tamils um, periodically. Uh, since after independence, um, which ultimately led to the worst of those riots in 1983, which is then taken as sort of being the, the beginning of the war. Um, so essentially we're looking at a full-scale civil war from 1983 uh, and sort of earlier kind of lower-scale guerrilla and terrorist attacks before then in the 1970s. A lot of the original groups who were involved in the conflict mm -hmm. came out of uh, youth groups. It was the young mm -hmm. people who formed these groups. Yeah. Were there particular disadvantages that drove people to, to, to get involved in that conflict? Yes, there were. I mean, one of the government policies which the, the Tamil Tigers or the Tamil community as, as a whole actually have been uh, most sort of frustrated by uh, is a policy which is known as standardisation, which effectively is a, a government policy which changed the rules um, that related to university entrance, which effectively meant that Tamils who had previously been actually overrepresented in terms of their numbers at university, um, those numbers dropped significantly. It became harder for a Tamil student to be admitted to university than it was if you were Sinhalese. So I think in terms of um, Tamil youth, that was a, a seen as a huge problem and, and, and still is seen as a huge problem. So I think that partly explains why the recruitment, um, or certainly in the early days anyway, of the Tamil Tigers was sort of from young university students or, or young people who wanted to be at university and, and were not able to get into university. 
there has been a lot of um, hope that a peaceful resolution could be, be found um, to resolve the conflict. But a lot of that's broken down now, um, and we've seen a resumption of the conflict. Why, why is that? I think part of the problem is, in terms of uh, sort of conflict resolution speak, you could say that both the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government have a history of, of having a very sort of uh, what's known as a zero-sum um, approach to the conflict, which is that each side wants a sort of all-out victory. Each side wants to, to um, maximise their kind of goals without having to compromise and give too much to the other side. So I think, I think at the, the time of the ceasefire, I think that the Tamil Tigers, from their perspective anyway, probably thought that this was the best chance that they'd had so far of actually getting what they wanted, which was an independent uh, an independent Tamil Elam. Mm. Um, because it did seem at the time that the Sri Lankan government was was potentially, you know, more willing to go to go down that route than it had been for a very long time. So I think the Tigers, as they have in the past, were perfectly willing to sort of give this a shot and see what happened, see what would happen. But um, as it turned out, it wasn't that straightforward. So I mean, commentators have been saying for a long time that even though the Tigers have been involved in the ceasefire and have been apparently committed to peace, uh, a lot of people have been saying they've sort of been playing a double hand. You know, on the surface they're committed to peace, but behind the scenes they've been using this as kind of a, a break in the war to catch their breath, to recruit more more soldiers, um, to get more arms and to train new recruits because they lost a lot of recruits in, in the war. So there's always been a huge question surrounding how actually how genuinely committed to peace the Tigers have been. Uh, and meanwhile, on the government side, um, you've always had this sort of conflict between uh, moderate politicians who are willing to some kind of compromise, probably not to an independent Tamililam, but to some kind of autonomous region. Um, but they're always having to balance that against the hardliners, both in the government and in the Sri Lankan um, populace, in terms of the, the Sinhalese population, so parties such as the JVP, who refuse, essentially, um, to allow any kind of compromise, any kind of reasonable sort of negotiation or, or peace deal with the Tigers. So it's a difficult balancing act for them, I think. Um, mm. And then uh, in 2004, you also had a pretty significant event, which was uh, the split in the, the Tamil Tiger movement when uh, a man known as Colonel Karuna, who uh, was one of their sort of leaders and one of their sort of military heroes, essentially, in, in the eastern province, uh, broke away from the LTTE and effectively started his own faction uh, and has been um, sort of working against the Tamil Tigers. I don't think this was that surprising, really. If you look at sort of patterns of, of other similar ethnic conflicts around the world, world, you, you do get this kind of pattern where you have the beginnings of a peace process and that leads to dissension within within groups and splits within groups and um, groups known as spoiler groups who are extremists or who, you know, are trying to spoil the peace process in some way. Uh, and, you know, the, and I don't think it was actually that surprising either in the sense that um, although outsiders might see Tamils in the north and east as sort of all being the same and all being, um, and the Tamil Tigers as all being united, um, actually throughout the history of the movement there have been sort of disputes and differences between the northern group, the northern groups and the eastern groups with eastern factions uh, always feeling that the north sort of dominated the leadership, that the eastern people were sidelined and all that kind of thing. So I don't think Karuna leaving was that surprising but obviously that has been a huge problem in terms of um, the conflict because he's sort of fighting a guerrilla war against Tamil Tigers. The government is seeing this as a useful opportunity, so they've been sort of uh, fostering Karuna or not taking steps to try and stamp out what he's doing. Because obviously, the more divided the the Tamil resistance is, the better that is for the government. How much support do 
the um, Tamil tigers actually have amongst the mm. native Tamil population? I think it's an interesting question and probably one of the hardest questions to answer because it's not it's not the kind of thing you can sort of go off and, and do a survey on, you know. And um, obviously in, in areas that are under tiger control, people are afraid. So, you know, they would be afraid to speak out, I think, if they are opposed to, to the tigers. Um, having said that, I, my impression certainly from, from having been there um, is that they do have a lot of support, um, particularly in areas that have been badly affected by government bombing, for example. So in the areas of the north where people have been displaced many times through government aerial bombing and, and that kind of thing, um, there is a lot of support for the Tamil Tigers because they feel that they are offering them the only protection they have against the government. Um, but I think often it's it's a it's a mixed kind of support. It's a reluctant support. You know, they they feel that they're the only option, but they recognise that there are huge problems. And on the one hand, um, I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, they do see a lot of them as, as heroes for, for supporting them, and they and in some ways they, they think that the Tigers therefore have some kind of right to, to be governing the North and East uh, in terms of the interim administration and then whatever the eventual political settlement is. But at the same time, an awful lot of people that I've spoken to do recognise the problem that um, they say, OK, the Tigers are all we've got. They're the only people we have who are sort of experienced in politics now, therefore they have to be the leaders. But at the same time, they worry that the Tigers, uh, as a sort of as a government, will be extremely undemocratic. And I think that's a very valid fear. And it's interesting that actually in the original uh, sort of foundational charter, if you like, of the Tamil Tigers, um, they actually said, like a lot of guerrilla groups do, that once they achieve the goal, once they achieve an independent Tamil Elam, they would disband. You know, that ultimately their end goal was that they would not be necessary. But, you know, that kind of talk does not exist anymore. What they're saying now is they want to rule in the north and east. So I, I think there are, there are concerns there. What influence does India have in this? Probably less than they did. In the 1980s, they were involved on the surface in terms of supporting the Sri Lankan government and trying to negotiate with the Tigers and, and bring about a, a peace process in terms of the Indo-Sri Lanka Accord in 1987. Mm. Um, but at the same time, behind the scenes, they were actually arming Tamil guerrilla groups, not just the Tamil Tigers, but uh, at, at the time, you have to remember, there were at least sort of five Tamil groups at the time. Um, and the only reason that the RTTE is sort of the the only one that is, well, the one that is dominant, the one that's spoken about most these days is because they essentially wiped out their, their opposition in, in the mid-80s. Um, but India was, or at least the state of Tamil Nadu, was arming and training uh, Tamil militants. They had a number of um, rebel army camps, um, primarily in Tamil Nadu, but then also a couple up in, in North India as well. They were They were trying to kind of play play the situation to their advantage. Um, they didn't want the situation in Sri Lanka to get too out of hand and they certainly didn't want an independent uh, Tamil Elam because they were worried about the sort of the domino effect that might have in terms of their own Tamil nationalist groups in Tamil Nadu. But at the same time, to placate Tamil Nadu supporters of the Sri Lankan Tamils, they you know they also um, were were supporting them. So um, it, yeah, it was a very dangerous game and it actually backfired on them because they essentially forced the Indo-Sri Lanka Accord on both parties uh, in, in 1987 and sent an Indian peacekeeping force, which was there for a couple of years in the, the late 80s, 
um, which ended up being extremely violent, led to war between the Indian Peacekeeping Force and the Tamil Tigers, which the Tamil Tigers won, India withdrew. So since then, they've been uh, not as sort of openly involved, but obviously they do still have uh, a very strong interest in resolving the situation. Uh, And they have also suffered from the Tamil Tigers in terms of um, assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, for example. What was the impact of the tsunami? Here was a major event that should, I suppose, have brought communities together. Yeah, actually, to be honest, I find it quite surprising that people were so optimistic in terms of what effect the tsunami would have because I, I just think I think that the conflict is so is so deep rooted in Sri Lanka has been going on for so long that um, something like the tsunami was in terms of the aid coming in, the aid coming in was always going to be something that was scrapped over, right? So you know you had the government wanting to be in charge of all the money, administer all the aid money, and of course you had the Tamil Tiger saying we don't trust the government. Naturally enough, I think they had a point, you know, to say that if they had let the government have all the money, they wouldn't, possibly wouldn't have distributed enough of it in sort of Tamil-controlled areas and certainly not in Tamil Tiger-controlled areas. I don't think it's surprising that the Tamil Tigers sort of demanded that they be allowed an equal share, especially as this is part of their whole sort of campaign to present themselves as the government, effectively, in the north and east. Uh, and although there was sort of an agreement reached in the end to, to share the money, it hasn't been easy. And obviously JV, the JVP again um, kicked up a huge fuss about that, you know, didn't want to be any party to that. So, yeah, it's difficult and it's and, and you know, probably unsurprising. But I also think it's worth noting that um, the tsunami killed about half as many people, you know, in, in the space of a few days as um, the conflict has in sort of 20 years. I think the ongoing effects are, are going to be felt for a long time. If you think if you think about the effects from the war in terms of um, displacement and refugees uh, and people who have been killed, and then you think, you know, just when they are kind of on the brink of, of peace and trying to come back from some of that, they lose 30,000 people again in the tsunami. So it's just, it's, I, I mean, you, just, you can't overemphasise really how devastating that was, I mm. think. One of the... Um not unique, but certainly distinctive elements about the conflict has been the role of women. And certainly the Tigers were sort of very famous about um, having a very active um, number of women supporters. Mm-hmm. What has been the role of women in the conflict? I think as in, as in any conflict, there have been the same kinds of roles in, in terms of um, sort of auxiliary roles, uh, nursing and intelligence, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah... Obviously, Sri Lanka is very. The Sri Lankan conflict is very notable in terms of having a much higher sort of percentage of actual female combatants than, than many other conflicts, uh, and it's been estimates sort of vary, but um, most estimates seem to say around thirty percent of the the fighting forces of the Tamil Tigers uh, have been female. Um, which, as you say, is is not unique. There are other examples. Um, Nepal, for example, ongoing at the moment. There are a large number of of women. Um, the the uh, Kurdish resistance also um, has many women in it, but uh, Sri Lanka, I think, has been very prominent and possibly one of the earlier cases of having that kind of percentage of, mm. of female mm. fighters. You mentioned the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, which mm. of course was um, yes, a woman female suicide, suicide bomber. bomber. Yeah. Yes, I mean they have. They, uh, I think, women have not only been sort of conventional uh, combatants in the Tamil Tigers, but yes, you're right. They have also been very sort of prominent as suicide bombers, and mm. and as you say, some of the most prominent, some of the most um, high level assassinations have been by female suicide bombers, which obviously has caught the world's attention. Mm. I find it interesting actually when when the the second intifada in in, um, in Palestine started, you know, there were some sort of news reports that were presenting this as as if 
uh, sort of women being involved or female suicide bombers, this was unique. You know, it's never been seen before. And you know, as as someone interested in Sri Lanka, I found that very frustrating because it's sort of like, well, actually, this has been going on for a long time. You know, has the um, has the involvement in certainly in the combative part of the uh, of the movement been reflected in involvement in the political side of things? Not to quite the same extent, and that's something that the Tamil Tigers have been criticised for. Um, but I think, I think that that people with people who say that they haven't been involved at all in the political side, that they're just being used as cannon fodder and they have no say in, in how the organisation is run and what their policies are, are wrong, right? They're, women have been involved and are involved uh, in the in the political wing. Um, on the other hand, I think it is also fair to say that, that they, until recently anyway, have not been as have not been represented to the same level as they have in the military side of things. Um, but, you know, part of this has, has been... Uh, something that has developed over time. So, for example, when I interviewed a woman whose Tamil Tiger name is Tamalini, who is the the head of the women's um, the women's political wing of the the Tamil Tigers, her sort of her view on it. Obviously, she would want to sort of put a positive spin on it, but you know, um, to be fair, her view on it was that uh, essentially the route to political power in the LTT is through uh, military history right mm. military involvement and men had been involved in the in the movement longer than women and therefore there were more who sort of had the requisite experience and and training and abilities to to get to the sort of high political positions mm. and so she what she was saying was that as women sort of came to that same position then they would also be taking on those kind of political roles uh, and I mean, there are there are women who are on the sort of the LTT's kind of central committee. So it's not that they are excluded at all. So where do we go from here? Um, you've kind of drawn some parallels between uh, the conflict in Sri Lanka with the situation in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you you look at the example of the peace process in Northern Ireland Absolutely, as well as another yeah. similar kind of case study. Um, where does Sri Lanka go from here? Um, mm-hmm. What are the routes to resolving the conflict mm-hmm. or is this um, an unsolvable problem I I don't think that any conflict is unsolvable um, I would never want to be that pessimistic I think it's it's easy to perpetuate conflict by saying things like it's just as impossible there's nothing that can be done um, but having said that I'm not sure I don't think there are any obvious sort of answers I'm not sure what the solution is for Sri Lanka at the moment my fear is that we will see in Sri Lanka what we have been seeing in Northern Ireland and various other places, which is a situation of, of sort of neither war nor peace. Um, Roger McGinty actually has just brought out a, a, a book um, which is about this this very thing, that, that we seem to be seeing this phenomenon uh, in the world at the moment where you you know we have these sort of formal peace processes usually mediated by a third party sort of Western government which has a particular perspective on what kind of peace we should mm. be seeing, what kind of political solution we should be seeing. Um, and sort of encourages uh, a, a civil war or an ethnic conflict to to go down that road, and so we end up with this sort of formal peace, formal sort of peace uh, document or negotiations. Or in Sri Lanka's case, we're not even quite there yet; we're still only at the ceasefire stage. But it's a similar kind of thing. So you kind of end up in this sort of stagnant position where you've got formal peace but on the ground there's still a lot of hostilities going on um, people are still dying or even if they're not dying at the same rate that they were 
you know, in terms of their, their real lives, things are not moving on, that, you know, they don't have a democratic system, that there are economic problems and, and so forth. So you have this sort of neither war nor peace sort of limbo land, mm. which drags on for a long time. And certainly you can see that going on in Northern Ireland um, with the collapse of the Assembly and, and so forth and the, the enormous problems trying to get that going again. And my, my real fear is that that is the way that Sri Lanka is heading. Obviously, violence has escalated enormously since last year. Uh, and some people might say that, that Sri Lanka really is already in a de facto war again, um, but neither side sort of will admit to that because uh, neither side can actually afford at the moment to go back to the kind of all-out war that they were engaged in before. They don't have the money, the resources and so forth, especially since the, mm. the tsunami. So it could be this case of each side is kind of biding its time again, waiting to sort of rebuild itself. Mm. Um, because I think the problem is trying to get each side, as I said before, both of them are sort of still seem to be locked in this zero-sum kind of mentality. So the problem is trying to get each side to move towards a positive-sum kind of attitude where each of them recognises that they're not going to get the ultimate solution they want and they're willing to, to compromise something um, in exchange for a, a sort of a less perfect solution, which is something which is acceptable for all. I suppose the difficulty at the moment, though, with, you know, with all the various ethno-conflicts that are going on uh, around the world at the moment, that the, the conflict in Sri Lanka really isn't grabbing the international attention yeah. in the same way that the situation yeah. in Israel and Palestine is, yeah. in Iraq and Afghanistan. Absolutely. Um, I mean, is there an international will to see a, a peaceful resolution? I think I think there's a will, but th- that will doesn't translate into actually putting the effort in. It doesn't translate into the means. Mm. Um, and, I mean, this is a problem that Sri Lanka has always faced. Uh, it's a very small country that has no enormous sort of geostrategic importance to anyone other than India, possibly. So it's been very difficult uh, throughout the history of the conflict to actually get um, sort of powerful Western powers interested in, in um, trying to mediate the conflict. So it's interesting, for example, that it's the Norwegians that have been mediating the, the most recent bout rather than sort of America, for example, wanting to get involved. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think the presumption that you know a major Western power coming in and sort of um, mediating or, or sort of forcibly mediating, the idea that that is going to solve the conflict I think is enormously problematic. In some ways it frustrates me that so little attention is often paid to Sri Lanka when so many people have died. Um, but on the other hand... I'm not sure that, you know, the international attentions of America and Britain, for example, in, in ter- you know, in terms of their, their attentions in Iraq would actually help. So do you think in the short term then that we, we should be expecting more violence yes. and more trouble? Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I do. And we're already seeing sort of renewed uh, flows of refugees leaving the country, which is just incredibly sad. And the first time I was in Sri Lanka in 2002 was sort of a few months after the ceasefire had been signed. Uh, and it was incredible to see these floods and floods of people who had been refugees in other countries in, in Britain and Canada and so forth for so long. Some of them had, had been away for 20 years or more um, coming back to go and see their old homes, to see their families, you know, considering moving back, um, bringing their children with them, many of whom had been born here or born in Canada and, you know, had never even seen Sri Lanka, um, travelling to the north and, and, and the east and, and seeing the devastation. And, and there was a real sense of hope at the time. There really was a sense of optimism on both sides, you know, and that has just been lost and I find that incredibly sad. Miranda, thank you very much. Thank you.